Father, as we come before you this morning, we're grateful that we can, uh, we can gather publicly and without having to be in secret to worship you, to uh, fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ, to hear your word taught and to uh, sing praise to you. And we just ask your blessing on our services today. We ask that anyone that may come here that doesn't know you would hear the gospel and would recognize their sin and turn to Jesus as their Savior. We ask your blessing on our children's ministries. We ask that uh, the, the teachers would have clarity in, in speaking your word to them, that these children would see the reality of who you are and not be uh, focused on the ritual of coming to church. And we ask that you would bless here today um, as only you can. We are dependent on you. So we turn to you in faith and ask that you would work in us to change us into the image of Jesus Christ. And we ask this in his name and for your glory. Amen. All right. We're in 1 Samuel 14. Any, anyone here have a relative who participated in D-Day? Anyone have a relative? Maybe I'll back up. Anyone have a relative that fought in World War II? Okay, a couple. Oh, wow, several. Okay. But anybody that actually they were, their relative was in D-Day, part of that operation? Maybe, sort of. Yeah, okay. Lisa's uncle was a paratrooper, and he dropped into France on D-Day. That's as close as I can get, which is pretty impressive. And he survived it, which a lot of those paratroopers didn't. I, I was looking at um, some statistics around D-Day, there was 156,000 service members from the U.S., Canada, and England that participated in the D-Day invasion. There's 50,000 German troops defending the French coast. The stat I saw said 2,400 miles of defended coast, which seems way too big to me. They only attacked in 50 miles. Uh, but the, an enormous, enormous operation took um, over a year to plan. The logistical challenges were immense, um, and it was critical. It was critical that the continent be invaded so that the Nazis could be pushed back and repelled and beaten. And unless you actually cross the channel from England to the continent to France, you never win. You have to go over there and you have to fight. And it takes courage to get in that little boat, thousands of little boats going across 30 miles of channel, and to jump out of the boat on the right command, way to shore, you know, facing machine gun fire and hoping you don't step on a landmine. It just, it, I just, I can't imagine what it takes to do that. I mean, I'm just not wired that way to, to get in that boat and do that. And, and a lot of those troops hadn't seen combat, at least, at least the US troops. The officers had, the officers knew what they were going into, at least some of them, I guess. I'm sure there's officers that hadn't seen combat. Um, and maybe it's better that they didn't know what they were getting into because it was going to be really, really terrible. But they had to fight in order to win. God had given Israel the promised land. He had promised Abraham centuries before that the promised land would be, there, would be his relatives, his descendants, um, the land of Canaan. When God brought Israel out of Egypt. He brought them for the purpose of going into the land and possessing it. He told Moses to go into the land and possess it. 
Moses told Joshua, go into the land and possess it. And it's like, well, there's people here. <laughs> How are we going to possess it when they possess it? And God was pretty direct about what needed to happen. They needed to be driven out. And God said, I will drive them out, is what he told Joshua. About halfway through the book of Joshua, I don't remember the exact chapter, and they've had a lot of battles, a lot of wins, and God said, I will drive out the Philistines, in particular, he, he fingers. I think it was Judges 13, uh, Joshua 13. And he said, I will drive them out, but you need to possess this land and you need to allocate it to the different tribes and, and we will take it over time. And fast forward into our book of 1 Samuel, we see that the, the, the Philistines are still in the land and they are still a problem and they are, um, they, they are lording over Israel in a lot of ways and we see a lot of battles, a lot of skirmishes with, um, with the Philistines and Israel. And as we have seen uh, thus far in the book of Joshua, we see you know, characters that are um, increasing in prominence and influence, and we see characters that are declining. So it's this kind of back and forth and back and forth. In chapter 14, we're just going to do one chapter today because it's really long, um, we're going to see a further decline of Saul. We saw Saul's decline start um, last week when he did not obey, he did not wait at Gilgal as he should have for the Lord and his instruction and for Samuel to come and offer the sacrifice. And so we're going to see his waning, this major character of the book, one of the three major characters of the book, waning in influence. We're, all, we're going to see a minor character actually increasing in influence, and that's Jonathan, his son. And so let's, uh, let's start reading in chapter 14, and we'll see a little bit of what um, we know about Jonathan. Let's see if I can get this turned around here. There we go. Okay, so let's read verses 1 through 5 together. One day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah, in the pomegranate cave of Migron, the people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. <clears throat> Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other was Sineh. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, and the other on the south in front of Geba. So here we see in these first five verses really the setting. So we have gone from uh, chapter 13, where, um, where, where Saul had a failure um, of obedience, and now we see the, the, the chapter 14 start with the words, one day. So it's almost like once upon a time. It's almost like, okay, this is the beginning of a new story that we're going to tell you. And so we see some information given to us about Jonathan. Now, what do we know about Jonathan at this point? If we were reading this book for the very first time, what would we know about Jonathan? Not that he's a friend of David later and all of that, but what do we know about Jonathan at this point? It says he's the son of Saul. In this, in this chapter, it says he's the son of Saul. Yeah. 
So he's younger than Saul anyway, right? We don't know how old he is. So how old, so given the circumstances of what's going on right here, how old do, do we think he is? Yeah, maybe he's 20s. He was a warrior because he had someone that carried his armor. That's true. So we know that he's younger than Saul, but old enough to fight. He's also old enough to lead. He was in charge of a, of a garrison in a previous chapter, and we know that he's a warrior. Good. Anything else? Gretchen. For the last chapter, he actually had armor. Most of the Israelites didn't. That's a good observation. He actually had armor. At the end of chapter 13, we see that the Israelites had to go to the Philistines to get their axes and plow and plows sharpened. Is there a hand over here? Yeah. If you don't know anything else about him, either he's rebellious or he doesn't trust his father. Yeah, what's that about? Why does he not tell his father? And, and it says the people don't know either. So this is like he's sneaking out. He's like going out in the middle of the night or something. I, I, I'm not sure that I have an answer for that as to why he didn't tell his father. Part of me thinks he didn't tell his father because his father might say no, <laughs> right? And he wasn't going to take no for an answer. So is he just um, restless? He just can't sit still. He has to go do something. Is he rebellious? As Havis mentioned, as an alternative, that's possible, I suppose. But we see Jonathan, and we're starting to see some character develop with Jonathan. And we're going to see in this chapter 14, the character of Jonathan contrasted with the character of Saul, his father. And there's going to be a, a fair contrast. So what other participants do we see in this, in these, in these first few verses? Okay, armor bearer, unnamed, but we see him. Who's with Saul? I missed that. 600 men. 600 men. And specifically one guy. Who's this one guy? This priest. And, and the, the writer goes out of his way <clears throat> to give his genealogy. Now, what's that all about? Well, we're not told yet, but this is foreshadowing for something that's going to happen a little later in the chapter. So we won't rush ahead on that. <clears throat> the place. So the place here is initially Gibeah. It says in verse 3 that Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah. If we look back at chapter 13, verse 14 or 15, 15, after the incident um, at Gilgal, Samuel rose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin, so evidently they were still at Gibeah. Now, if you go back to the beginning of chapter 13, verse 2, it says that the standing army of Israel was divided between Saul and Jonathan, who was in Gibeah of Benjamin. Go back to chapter 10. We're going to get another reference to Gibeah. After, after Samuel appointed Saul king, in verse 26 of chapter 10, Saul also went to his home in Gibeah. So, a couple of chapters have passed, but Saul has gone home. Maybe that's not completely irrational. But we see this contrast of, of Jonathan, who's like, I am like leaving home, and we see Saul who is staying home. And Saul is here with his 600 bodyguards, 
and he's nice and safe, and we see him, um, it says that he's staying in a pomegranate cave, another rendering is po- under a pomegranate tree, so it's, there's, there's this image of, of safety here. So Jonathan gets in his mind that he's going to go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side, verse 1. So it doesn't say exactly what his purpose is at this point. So we'll pick that up in verse 6. Could someone read for us verses 6 through 10? I think I've gotten through all of the the weird names. Jeff, thanks. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart, do as you wish. Behold, I am with your heart and soul, with you heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, behold, we will cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. All right, so we'll stop there before we get the sign, right? So here we see Jonathan talking to his armor bearer, and he is taking some initiative, and he gives a rationale for going over to visit the Philistines. What's, what's the rationale? Into verse 6. That's right. See, well, let's go see what the Lord's going to do. Maybe the Lord will deliver by our hands. And his rationale goes even further. It says at the end of verse 6 that the, there's nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. So what do we see about Jonathan's view of God here? It's powerful. There's trust there, right? So God is powerful and he is trustworthy. What else? I think you've hit on the core. This is probably the key verse of the chapter. So usually I like to hide this until the end, but it it didn't work out that way. Cuppy. That's right. Any victory that comes is going to be God's. It's not going to be because of what they have to do. That's good. That's good. Jonathan had a big view of God. And that big view of God, that doctrinal belief, fueled what? An action. That doctrine fueled thoughts about God. God is big, so therefore, God doesn't need a lot. He doesn't need a huge army to win, because God's bigger than they are. And then that fuels action. Let's take action, and let's see what God will do. God may be willing to work for us. While this feels slightly like he's being a little presumptive on God, what we will see is that Jonathan is actually being fairly careful. And in seeking God's will in this matter, he's taking one step and looking for confirmation from God, taking another step, looking for confirmation from God. And he takes that a step at a time. And when he sees it, he moves forward very, uh, very quickly with action. He realizes that God doesn't need a lot to work with. He's not concerned about numbers. This kind of reminds me of the story of Gideon. 
in Judges. And God sees the army that Gideon has, it's over 30,000 men, and he says, too big. He lays out a test, narrows it down to, I think it was 10,000, still too big. Another test, narrows it down to 300. Okay, now this is something I can work with. These are odds that I like. Why did God do that? So that everyone would know that the Israelites didn't win the battle, God won the battle. God sets up very difficult circumstances for Israel so that they will see God for who he is. He sets up difficult circumstances for Israel so that their faith will be increased when he works mightily. Is that how God works in our life? We see difficult circumstances and we say, oh, this is terrible. I can't believe this is happening to me. I'm like, well, hold on. This is, this is an opportunity for a mighty God to show that he can take care of your smallest problems or your biggest ones too. He doesn't need a lot to work with. One of the things we see about Jonathan here is that his faith in God fuels his courage to act. He believes God. The armor bearer is loyal to him. He says, listen, whatever you want to do, I'm with you. Let's go. This is really, that's pretty awesome. And then we see his plan laid out. Let's cross over. We'll reveal ourselves. We'll wait for a reaction. And then, um, then we'll go from there. Either way, Jonathan was essentially willing to, to do whatever the circumstances presented, putting it in God's hands to direct those circumstances. And then in verses 11 through 15, we'll see the victory that God gives. So could someone read for us 11 through 15? Yep, Tim, thank you. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armed bearer and said, Come up to us and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armed bearer, Come up after me. For the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike which Jonathan and his armor bearer made killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp and the field and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. So we see here that Jonathan, you know, comes, you know, takes advantage of this rocky, difficult terrain. He comes up to this garrison by a way that the Philistines wouldn't have been expecting. He reveals himself in the armor bearer. The Philistines look, and I, I kind of think that maybe they thought he was a deserter, and I'll, I'll show you the reason for that later on in the chapter. And they're like, oh, look at somebody's been, he's crawling out of his hole. And we had seen in an earlier chapter that people of Israel were hiding themselves because they were so afraid of what the Philistines were going to do. So the, the Philistines are mocking them and say, you know, come on up here. We want, I, I love how this says in verse 12, come up to us and we will show you a thing. It's like, like, aren't you even creative to say what it is that you're going to show it to them? And they're like, well, it, it doesn't matter. He's like, come up here, we got something to show you. And, the, and Jonathan's like, yeah, I'm coming. I'm coming and I'm fighting. And this is what's, what's, what we're going to do. And Jonathan is like a fighting machine. 
He's, he, he is spirit-empowered here. He is doing what he came to do. He interprets this favorable answer as God has given them into our hands. <clears throat> and God really had. And Jonathan attacks. His armor-bearer follows. And then God puts his little stamp of approval on it in verse 15. We see that there was panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. Can you imagine the panic? You got these two guys that are coming up, and they kill 20 guys. Those are incredible odds. And it creates a panic, and then it, it gets worse. It says at the end of 15, the garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked. So we had seen in earlier chapters that God sent thunder, and it panicked the Philistines. And now we see that God sends an earthquake, and it becomes a very great panic. Someone have a footnote on that, that great panic? I think there's an ESV footnote there. Yeah, it became a panic from God. It became a panic from God. So the writer identifies where the panic came from, that God was working in Philistine hearts to create panic for the benefit of his people. So God is blessing Jonathan's initiative against the enemy, and God gets directly involved. Now, what's Saul doing this whole time? Saul is probably about four miles away, and there is rough terrain in between, and he has, evidently he has scouts that are looking and seeing because the information comes back to, uh, back to the, the, the camp where Saul is, comes back to Gibeah. And so we'll see that Saul joins the attack, but it's kind of this odd set of decision-making um, situation where Saul doesn't like just jump up and like rush into battle. And you have to stop and think, what's going on in Saul's mind right now? What just happened? I mean, we don't know the time lag between chapter 13 and chapter 14. They were still in the same location. So we, you know, I'm inclined to think that it wasn't a huge time lag, but it probably wasn't the next day either, given how chapter 14 starts. But Saul may be remembering that he failed to wait for Samuel to come, and he rushed in and offered the sacrifice when he shouldn't have. And if that's what he's thinking, he may be thinking, I'm not going to do that again. So it, I, I don't want to be overly critical of Saul in this, but he does have this odd decision-making activity. The, the Philistine activity is observed. We're not going to take the time to read all of these verses here. And Saul asks in verse 17, who's missing? And, you know, why is there a tumult going on over there? <coughs> in other words, who, who from here is over there causing all of this stir? And it, it appears that, that Saul gets a little wrapped up in the analysis here. Um, some of the commentators I look, looked at were pretty tough on Saul for this. They say things like, you know, um, Saul acted when he should have prayed and prayed when he should have acted. This is a man who didn't have terrific judgment as a leader, um, and he didn't have a terrific spiritual um, lifeline. He needed Samuel. He needed Samuel to help him to understand when to pray and when to act. And so he is like flapping in the wind here. 
And so what does he do? He, he, he starts acting. I put in the, no, the notes here that it's consideration of God's will. He acts like he wants to know God's will. Look at verse 18. Um, Saul said to Ahijah, so this is the priest who was identified before, bring the ark of God here, for the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Okay, does this sound like vaguely familiar? Haven't we done this before? You go back in the chapter, is it chapter 4? where Israel lost a battle to the Philistines, so what do they do the next day? They're like, okay, let's get the ark out here, and the ark will be the difference maker. Let's get our rabbit's foot. Let's get our lucky charm, and that'll take care of it. We will bring God to the battle. They're looking at the ark in a very ritualistic kind of way. And so Saul seems to not be taking any chances. He takes his priest, and he takes the ark with him, where he goes. This, this, has led, this has led people to think that Shiloh has been destroyed in one of the Philistine battles because the ark isn't at Shiloh anymore. You may remember it was, it was in the house of, I've forgotten who. It was in somebody's house for 20 years or whatever. Um, so evidently, that was just where it got parked. But here it's out with the, the people, out with the army. In verse 19, Saul is talking to the priest and the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. So evidently, Saul's not getting answers, is what it appears. It doesn't say that he got any answers. So we're left with that implication. So a little bit of speculation in there, but I think that's, that's probably right. So is he being overcautious in this? Should he have been Should he have waited further and said, listen, I am not going until we hear from God? Well, he's, he's not going to hear from God because of the sin that has been committed. It appears that he did not get an answer. It, it also appears that there's two factors that stop him from this inquiry. One is the implication that he hasn't gotten an answer. The second is explicit. It says the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. This sounds familiar from chapter 13, where the reason that Saul said he sacrificed is the people were dispersing. He saw the circumstances around him, and it caused fear in his heart, and he said, I have to act. Instead of seeing the circumstances around him and having faith in God and saying, I need to rely on him. That's the difference we see a stark contrast between Saul and Jonathan. Jonathan took a step, waited on God, took a step, waited on God, and God gave him the victory. God did it. Here we see Saul tries to wait on God, gets impatient because the the circumstances around him are causing him to panic a little bit. So just as he abandoned waiting for Samuel and offering the sacrifice in chapter 13 when the people were dispersing, so now he abandons seeking God's direction when the tumult among the Philistines increases. Hearing God speak in spite of the noise of circumstances is difficult. When we have noisy circumstances going on around us, one thing we need to do is be quiet and wait before the Lord and listen for him to speak through his word. It's hard to do that sometimes. It's hard to do that when the circumstances of financial problem, a health problem, a work problem, a relationship problem, a family problem, 
one of those things starts happening and it is screaming so loudly into our life, it's difficult to stop and wait and listen and say, God, I am waiting on you. I'm relying on you to act. I'm going to take a step. I'm going to wait and see what you say and what doors you open. So we see now Saul jumps into the battle and he leads the attack. He seizes the opportunity and we see other, others join in the fight in these verses 20 to 23. Um, verse 21, now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time. So we have some deserters, it appears, and who had gone up with them into the camp. So this sounds voluntary. It doesn't sound like they're POWs. Even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. So we see the victory credit is given to the Lord. We're not told who gave the credit to the victory to the Lord. We'd seen in a previous battle that Saul did that. It doesn't say that here. So I'm, I'm inclined to believe that the difference between the way these stories are accounted for shows that Saul wasn't the one that was doing this. But he did seize the opportunity, and um, God works through this, even though Saul hadn't been um, lined up with God and seeking him in his will in a way that, that God would communicate with him. What we're really seeing here is that God uses Jonathan. God uses Jonathan, a man of faith, to win a victory for his people. You know, God wants our heart. So that's Jonathan, right? So you're seeing, yeah. you know, he loves God as opposed to Saul. All right, bring the, bring the things, you know. Yeah, right. You know, this, bring the things. So, but Jonathan loves God. He's, you know, he's inspired. Right. So maybe that's the... Right. Yeah. Well, chapter 13, you know, kind of a key verse was when, when Samuel said to Saul, um, you know, God is seeking for a man after his own heart, a man whose heart is knit to God, who is one with God, who is following God rather than trying to lead God. And we see Saul just kind of thrashing around. It's like he doesn't know what to do. You know, like, bring me the ark, you know, priest, let's, you know, do this thing, you know, figure this out and like, do your thing, you know, do your little magic trick, you know committing to God, too. He's he like, is, well, you know, know what, Lord? Yeah, so, understand. And Jonathan, it, it doesn't say this explicitly in Scripture, but what Jonathan is doing is he is fulfilling God's purpose for Israel at this point. And that goes back to where I started with God's purpose for Israel is that they would possess the land. In order to possess the land, they, the people in the land needed to be removed. And is, um, Jonathan is doing just that. He is following God's big will, you know, the, the macro will for the, for, the, for the country, for the people. Now we see that Saul just kind of doubles down on his thrashing around, um, verse 24 through 46. He swears this oath. Let's look at the oath itself. Verse 24, <clears throat> and the men of Israel had been hard pressed that day. So it sounds like they fought all day long. So when in, in military strategy, the, the, where the most casualties happen is when one side is in flight, 
One side is in retreat. The other side is pursuing. And so these people don't, you know, they have their backs to them and, and they're being hunted down. And, and this is where victory can go from just an, a narrow win to a massive slaughter. And so they, it sounds like they have been pursuing this. And it's all on foot back then, right? I mean, there's no Jeeps, no tanks. They are running. They're walking. They're covering a lot of territory, hard terrain. And they are exhausted. They'd been hard-pressed. <clears throat> so Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged of my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. Credit to the people for following their leader. What in the world is Saul thinking? Is he thinking, you know, like, listen, nobody sit down and have a meal. You know, we don't have time for that. Nobody, you know, take a coffee break here. You know, it's time to work. What is going on? It's hard to imagine why he gave this command, this oath. Napoleon, much, much later said, the ar army marches on its stomach. Napoleon realized that if you want the army to fight, you got to feed them. You got to keep the supply chain coming. Saul was missing that little fact. Maybe Saul didn't expect it to take so long. I, I, I don't know. I'm really at a loss as to what was going on in Saul's head that made him think that this was a good idea. Any thoughts, reactions to that? Reactions from the text. Look at the last phrase that Saul says. And I, I, I... I am avenged of my enemies. Wow, this sounds kind of personal, Saul. Hmm. So this isn't until we have fulfilled God's will. This isn't until God is avenged of his enemies. This isn't until God tells us to stop. This is until I get my revenge. Until I accomplish what I want. A little bit of a control problem here. It's like, listen, none of you are going to do anything until we get what I want. Well, that's a control problem. Saul is trying to, I think, reassert his leadership. I think he realizes that Jonathan, you know, just emerged as like the leader of Israel. And like, okay, I got I to gotta, like, I gotta do something about this. You know, he may be my son, but he's my son. You know, I mean, like, listen, I am the king here. A little bit of speculation there just to be careful. I think also there's a loss of perspective in addition to it being a control problem. This sounds like Samson. Judges 16, 28, Samson prays to God and what does he say at the end of his life when he wants to be, um, when he wants to take down the house of the Philistines. Let me be avenged. Same word. Let me be avenged of my eyes. Oh, that's personal. Yeah. You know, I can kind of understand it with Samson because they poked out his eyes. But it wasn't so that God will receive glory, so that in my death, God would be glorified. What a difference that would be then. You know, let me be avenged of my eyes. The fight shouldn't have been personal, but it was. The fight should have been for God's glory because these were God's enemies. It feels to me like he has lost perspective of what it means to be king. And he's falling into the exact trap that Samuel warned Israel of that the king would do. And we see consequences of this foolishness, this foolish curse. 
The consequences is that Jonathan doesn't know about the oath that Saul has sworn. And as they go into the forest, they see this honey, and Jonathan dips his staff in it and tastes the honey. This is like the smallest amount of food material like you can imagine, right? But it breaks the command, and the people are like, oh no, Jonathan, we forgot to tell you. Your dad said nobody should do this. What's Jonathan's reaction to it? Jonathan's reaction is, my father is troubling Israel. That was foolish. How are the people supposed to fight if they're hungry? He answers practically and honestly, even though it doesn't put his father in a good light. Saul had made it hard for the people. It goes, the, the, the story goes on and tells us that um, they kept fighting. Verse 31, they struck down the Philistines from Michmash to Ajalon. The people were very faint. Well, yeah, because they haven't eaten all day. And <clears throat> at that point, it's the end of the day, so evidently the, the, you know, the curse is lifted. And there is spoil, so there's animals here. And so they start slaughtering the animals, and they're just like so hungry, they're like butchering them and eating the meat raw. And that's a violation of Levitical law. And so, you know, someone says to Saul, you know, you know listen, people are sinning by eating this stuff raw. And, and Saul jumps on that, and he says, okay, stop doing that, and let's, let's do it properly. And, and he arranges his circumstances. That sounds good, right? And it, 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 and it is good, because that was a command of God. But that is like a, like a ritualistic command of God versus like the obedience of the heart that God commands for us. It's like Saul was really good at this kind of stuff. Like, it's almost like Pharisee kind of stuff. Like, you know, we'll, we'll mind this, the outward actions that we, can, that we can do and see, but, you know, having a heart that follows God is something that I can't comprehend. And at the end of this section... In verse 35, and Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. I'm not sure why the writer wants us to know that it was the first altar. It sounds like a good thing. He built an altar to the Lord, but then saying it was his first, and he's ruled for probably years at this point, um, that sounds like a bad thing. Like, why did it take so long? Or should he even be doing this? We don't have a lot of answers given. And then we see the... um, the resolution from his curse. We see that um, Saul pronounces judgment, verse 36. He says, Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man for them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. The people are willing to follow him. The soldiers are following. But the priest says, Let us draw near to God here. Saul says, Okay, let's inquire of God. They inquire of God, should we go down or not? And God doesn't answer. Saul perceives that there is sin, and that's why God is not answering. And verse 41, um, he lays out a test, and he, and he basically says, you know, let's figure this out as to where there is sin. And, and he goes straight to dividing the people from the leadership. You know, if it's a sin of the people, you know, we'll have this result. And if it's the sin of Jonathan or me, we'll have that result. I think he knows. I think he knows that it's Jonathan or him that's the problem. And he can't put his finger on it. So <clears throat> it comes down to this casting of lots, verse 43. Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you've done. Now Jonathan confesses. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. 
Saul had pronounced a death sentence for anyone that had violated his command, a death sentence that God never commanded, never authorized. Jonathan confesses at this point, and he's willing to accept the penalty. That's amazing. My little rebel heart would say, yeah, I did it, but that was a stupid command. (laughs) The people save Jonathan. The people intervene. And the people here are soldiers. So Saul is giving this command, kill my son, and everyone's saying, no, we're not doing that. This is the man who God used to give the victory today. We're not going to kill him. The people, these people are committing treason against the king. They are disobeying his command. They are supporting a different leader than the king. But Saul seems to accept that perhaps he doesn't have a choice. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Verse 46, then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines and the Philistines went to their own place. So at this point, he stops pursuing the Philistines. He was going to pursue them through the night, but he decides not to do that any further. It seems like he has been maybe stripped of his leadership in this, that he didn't feel like he had the ability to lead the people in this fight. And so he's like, okay, we're not going to fight anymore. I don't know if this is like take your ball and go home kind of stuff (coughs) or if his pride has been wounded. But one thing I wonder as we get to the end of this chapter here, is this the beginning of Saul's mental imbalance that we see later in the book? Where we see him acting very irrationally, we see some paranoia setting in, things like that. But we see that it all starts back in chapter 13 with Saul not obeying the Lord. This last section, which the last bell has rung, so we won't read, <coughs> but it's, it's kind of a postscript. And it, it tells that Saul did some good stuff for Israel. He fought, he fought for them. It gives some family um, information. And his strategy was that every time he saw a, a strong, valiant war, warrior, he would take them. So we've already talked about what we learn about God here. We've learned about God, that he's mighty. He doesn't take a lot to save people. We learn about man, that man is given to trust himself rather than trusting God. And when he does, that results in foolish decisions. And the overall point of the lesson today really is that courage is generated through faith while foolishness stems from selfless reactions. We need to have a belief in a big God and that will give us courage and faith. (coughs) Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this account. We're grateful for what we see of the character of Jonathan and Saul. Pray that we would learn from that. Pray you give us faith in you, a big God. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.